This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering five conversations from Season 3, Episode 48, a review of the recent press releases for Five Drugs in Development, plus, from the vault, a section from our Nash Tag 22 coverage considering different issues surrounding the trial designs and use of drug and diagnostic combinations. This conversation starts with me commenting that if medications with different modes of action enter the market, and remember, today we're discussing four in clinical trials and two others sit at FDA, this will lead to exceptional levels of investment, market dynamism, and stakeholder education. Stephen Harrison goes back to PXL65 to discuss its significant impact on HbA1c, which is important for patients with diabetes and may prove helpful given that liver fat reduction with PXL65 is not as robust as it is with pemphidutide or afroxifermin. To Stephen, all this might make PXL65 a good choice in combination and or long-term maintenance therapy. He then goes on to discuss the Symmetry trial for Excella, whose agent is an endogenous metabolic modulator, which seeks to achieve pleiotropic effect on multiple NASH pathways at the same time. The drug has a unique dose form. It's a liquid you mix somewhat like Tang and an exciting pre-planned interim analysis that they're conducting during recruitment. Results of a small sample of early enrollees in this pre-planned interim analysis are extremely promising and he spends the rest of the conversation presenting these results in some detail and providing context for how we might all wind up looking at them. Last week, I described Nash drug development as heading into an exciting time, which made this week's podcast what Mazen Nouradine and Jorn Schottenberg each described as a wow episode. We have all thirsted for legitimate good news for so long. These press releases suggest we might not have that much longer to wait. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. I want to hark on Louise's point, which is that the more different modes of action you get into the market, the energy and the dynamism around the market will increase exponentially. Because first, there'll be a debate about which mode of action matches which patient. Then there'll be a debate about how do you put mono and combo therapies together. And it leaves lots of room to play and lots of things to discuss. And given the energy evolving in the class, all these issues, I think, really make for fantastic discussion and a lot of information, a lot of investment and um, a lot of education. Stephen Harrison. And I think it's also important to, we talked about the mechanism of action. We talked about the route of administration, talked about the AE profile. We talked about efficacy. It's also important to point out, and I didn't mention this, but it is there, the, the change in hemoglobin A1C that's not insignificant in this population. So that's also when we step back and we take off our myopic glasses as hepatologists where we're really focused on the liver and we look at the whole patient. Many of these patients are diabetic or on the verge of becoming diabetic and, and improving hemoglobin A1C glycemic control is important. And so we're seeing early signals that that's happening here as well. So I, I would be remiss if I say I'd like, you know, the liver fat content reduction we're seeing here is not as good as what we saw with the other two injectable compounds. But again, this is a very heterogeneous disease. Uh, not all patients are created equal. And we need to have an armamentarium of drugs in our toolbox to be able to reach to to help manage these patients. And I think if you look at the totality of the data with what we're seeing here, this drug sets itself up very nicely for either combination therapy or even once again, as you induce these people with a more potent drug, switching them to something that's better tolerated for the long term, maybe this sets itself up very nicely for that as well. Yeah, Stephen, in that context, I think it's worth noting that before we had GLP-1s and SGLT-2s, uh, pioglitazone was a blockbuster successful agent for the treatment of type 2 diabetes. It was called Actos 
course, it was widely used. It peaked at a couple of billion dollars in sales. Go ahead. Look, I was thinking about this earlier. You go all the way back to the Pivens trial. Yorn was in grade school when that trial came out. That was back in 2010. Long, long time ago. And what's in the guidance document? Well, you can use vitamin E if you're not a cirrhotic or you're not a diabetic. You know the treatment effect delta with vitamin E in that two-year trial? The treatment effect delta was 20%. And it's in our guidance. So again, I think we need to understand kind of where these drugs are relative to this very complex and complicated disease. Okay. Do we have time for two more quick discussions? Fire away. We're going to make time. Yeah, go for it. We got it. We got it. We're going to make it the wow episode. But I think Jorn was doing a movie back then. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, in fact, you know, Mazen, I was going to ask you if that was when he was making Goodwill Hunting, but you beat me to it. Oh, my gosh. All right, guys. Let's talk about... uh, Oh, wait, wait. I needed to update you on the Poxel. So that is also a late breaker oral at AASLD. So good news for them. Okay, so now moving on to Excella. So Excella, I I feel like this one is flying under the radar a little bit. And so I'm glad we're going to talk about it. So Excella has a group of endogenous metabolic modulators that are trying to get at in a pleiotrophic manner these multiple different pathways that regulate NASH pathogenesis. And it does that by combining in a proprietary way various amino acids in combination that target some of these pathways. It's an oral drug. It's like you mix it up in a drink. It's like, I don't know the best way to say it. If you remember Tang, the breakfast drink, it's a little bit like Tang. And you take it twice a day. So this trial, it's a phase 2B paired liver biopsy study. About 270 people are going to be enrolled in this one-year trial. It's a very good size phase 2B study. It's underway. It's currently enrolling. But they had this pre-planned interim analysis, much like Acasabutate did in their phase 2B study that I'll read out in the Q1 of 2023. So here we have this interim analysis when 30 subjects in each arm reached 12 weeks. And so that happened. That's what was pressed the other day. There are two different doses of what we call AXA1125, 22.6 twice a day and 33.9 twice a day compared to placebo. For this interim analysis, there was roughly 40 people in each arm. And just in summarizing the patient demographics and baseline characteristics, this study population is reflective of a very active disease state with significant fibrosis. Now, in this interim analysis, all that's being read out are three non-invasive markers, MRI-PDFF, ALT, and Fibroscan. That's what I'm going to tell you about here. So just jumping to the chase, when we look at Fibroscan, they're reported at 12 and 24 weeks because there actually were about half of those patients, maybe a little more, that made it all the way to 24 weeks and were included in this interim analysis. So at 24 weeks, you see a 4 KPA drop in Fibroscan with the high dose and two KPA drop for the low dose and actually no change in placebo. This was statistically significant for the high dose. So the four versus no change was significant. Now, putting that in perspective with another company we just talked about on this podcast, Acaro, at 24 weeks, that's the change they saw in Fibroscan with the high dose, 4.3 for a Fruxifermin 50 milligram. It was 4.07 for the AXA 
1.1125. When you reflect on what that is compared to maybe other drugs, the GLP-1 semaglutide at 72 weeks did not show a change in FibroScan. We look at obeta-colic acid. We'll talk about that in a minute. The 18-month trial had a one KPA difference with the high-dose, 25-milligram dose. So just reflecting on this particular biomarker, I would say that's very promising. What about ELF and FIB4? Those were also collected. There was a rise in the placebo of 0.4 at tweak 24 in the ELF. It was uh, the same in the low and the high dose, minus 0.3, minus 0.3. And those were both significant, but compared to placebo in large part because placebo went up. What about FIB4? I'm not a big believer in FIB4 as a monitor for therapeutic efficacy. However, it went up a little bit in placebo, went down a little bit in the drug-treated group in a dose-response manner. It was significant for both doses. And then finally, MRI PDFF. I'm sorry, let me talk about ALT first. ALT at 12 weeks had a, well, I'm going to just mention the change, the group of people that had at least a 17 unit per liter change for the sake of time, because that's the magnitude of effect change that Rohit showed us from the Flint trial. At the high dose, 39% of people had a 17 unit per liter drop. That was not significant relative to placebo, although there was a dose response relationship. Placebo had 17% that hit that magic number versus 39% in the high dose. Again, a trend there but not significant. What about PDFF? Just looking at a 30% relative liver fat content reduction. That's the magic number we talk about. Around 36% of the low dose hit that number that is significant relative to placebo. And 29% of the high dose hit that number. I think there's some variability there because of the small numbers of patients at that time point. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week to discuss the recent NICE meeting evaluating use of ECTE in community settings in the UK. In the meantime, stay safe, surf on, we'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.